let's have found that the holidays in between Thanksgiving and Christmas especially can be some of the hardest times of the entire year for people. Uh, not everyone is filled with joy and, and hope during the holiday season. Suicide rates skyrocket during this time. There are many people that are lonely, many people that are celebrating a first Thanksgiving and Christmas without a loved one. And so those times can certainly be difficult. But I've also found this, that usually in our times of despair, our times of loneliness, our times of questioning, our hearts are more open to receive a message of good news than ever before. And I think that we have a constant opportunity as believers to tell somebody. But I think especially in this Christmas season, we have a great opportunity, church, to tell somebody about why we celebrate. The trees and the decorations are wonderful. The presents are great. But the gift of Jesus Christ is truly why we celebrate the season. That God would send His Son to become the Savior of the world is truly the best news that we could ever give folks. And I thought this week as I was working on this message, if I took a poll in this room and I asked you, are you satisfied with the state and condition of our country? I think most of you would say a resounding no. We're not. We are not satisfied. And I do believe we have a duty uh, to do many things to try to correct things. We, complaining will never fix anything. Complaining will never solve anything. Whether that's in church, in home, in family, in government, it doesn't do anything but give you a microphone to say things that mean nothing, really. We need to be active and proactive. I think we should vote. And I think that that's an important duty for all of us to do. I think that we should be involved in our communities as best as we can to volunteer in things that will make a difference. Uh, whether it's through the pregnancy centers, whether it's through homeless shelters, things that we can do to lift up those that are in need. But ultimately... What's going to change our country, our churches, our families, our schools, is the gospel. Amen. Only Jesus can change the heart. Only Jesus can take something that's dead and make it alive. Amen. And it's amazing to me, and, I, and I'm going to share with you in these verses, of all the ways that God could have done that, He chose to use a written word through imperfect people to communicate that message. That may sound like the most silly and foolish method that was ever concocted. But if it came from the mind of a perfect holy God, then it must be the best way of doing this. I don't think that the failure, I know that the failure is not on His end. If there is a failure, it's on our end. And I think the single greatest failure that we all struggle with is to simply tell somebody. Let's tell somebody, church, today. And so... I want us to look this morning at these verses together. And I want us to bring out a few points. And I want to ask another question as we get into this. In your life, right now, currently, wherever you're at in life, what motivates you? What, what drives you? Where ultimately is your heart's greatest desire? And what propels you forward to pursue that with everything in you. Whatever it is. There was a story of a patient at a dentist office. And every time this guy had an appointment, he was habitually late. He'd show up 15 minutes late every time. And 
Eventually, the, the dentist and his helpers became aggravated with this guy. Said, you know, you're wasting our time. And so he came in for his appointment to have some work done. And he said, I apologize. 15 minutes late, like he always was. And they said, oh, don't you worry about it a, a bit. We've just decided to cut out the anesthesia part of the procedure and move forward with it. And obviously, if you caught that, you'll recognize that that would motivate him from here on out. If you've ever been to the dentist and they stick that needle in there and they start drilling and it's not quite numb yet, you come out of that chair fast, don't you? Right? That would motivate you to make sure you got to your appointment on time to get the anesthesia. What motivates us? What moves us? What is God doing in our lives to make us go from a spectator to a participant, to get involved in the work that He is doing? Look with me at this text today. I want you to see a few things. Just three quick points. In verse 11, Paul writes, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Taking notes, write this down. Number one, there's a contemplated motive. There is a contemplative motive. Paul says, I, I thought about these things. I tossed them around in my mind. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And I believe that that was part of the motivation for Paul. But if you notice, verse 11 begins with a word that you hear me harp on all the time. And that is therefore, and you've heard me say it a million times, it always points us back to something. And it also sometimes points us to if Paul has been teaching or whoever has been teaching something, the therefore is now moving us from teaching into action. It's moving us from doctrine into duty, whatever you want to term it as. So if we take that therefore and we look back in the chapter at what Paul has been saying, I think we can just pick up at verse 10, honestly. And we'll understand what it was that Paul was saying this therefore about. And verse 10 he says, We must all, he's speaking to believers, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. As believers, we have passed from death unto life. There's no condemnation for us. We are justified by grace through faith and have peace with God. And so I am grateful that Jesus took my sin upon Himself and took the entire wrath of God for my sin so that I would never have to face that. And He didn't just do that for me. He's done that for every single person who has trusted and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we can confidently say today that if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature that we have been made new and we have escaped the judgment of God for sinners. But, notice what Paul said. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This will be a judgment not based on salvation, but based on how we lived faithfully or not so faithfully in service to Jesus and to others. What have we done with our lives since we met Him at Calvary. How has our witness been? How has our lifestyles been? Paul said, when I consider that, when I consider that I'm going to give an account of my life to God, and knowing the fear of the Lord, 
that fearful duty, if you will, that's been entrusted to him. He says, we persuade others. We persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. So he says that number one that should motivate us is the fact that one day, church, we are going to stand before our holy God. Not for our salvation, but to give an account of everything that we have done with what He's given us. All of our possessions, all of our gifts, all of our talents are there for His glory. And anytime we bury them in the sand, anytime we tuck them away and refuse to use them, we are falling short of giving the honor to Him who provided those things for us. You're not hurting anyone else but yourself. Now you could say, yes, you're hurting the body too. And that may be true. But God will always find someone else to do the work. He's not dependent on me or you to see things done. But He allows us to be a part of that. And what a joy that should be for us. That the God of all the universe would say, I don't need you but I want you. I want to use you to stand in the pulpit and preach. I want to use you to be an encourager, to open up your home and, and show hospitality, to give someone a drink of cold water, whatever your act of service is to God. What a wonderful privilege we have. We ought to persuade others. Paul also said in that verse, if you noticed, he said, I hope it is known to you and also to our conscience he says not only are we motivated by our fear of the lord he says i have a clear conscience about what i'm doing we don't know why people do certain things when we watch them we can only assume what their motive is but we can't truly know what's in their heart there's been a lot of people that have looked outwardly like they were doing a lot of good but their heart was not in the right place. And in time, that showed itself to be true. And then there were a lot of times where people are judged and critiqued because people think that their motives are impure. But in the big picture, in the long run, they find out that those people were actually doing it for the right reason. One of my favorite preachers, you hear me talk about him all the time, is Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon and his wife had chickens. And they would collect the eggs each week and they would sell them. And no matter who it was, close friends, family, didn't matter. They always charged for the eggs. And because of that, people assumed that they were just stingy and wanted to make money off of the eggs. They wouldn't give anybody any of these things. The Spurgeons never defended themselves. They never retaliated for those slanderous things. They just kept on selling the eggs. And it was later found out that they would take every bit of the money that they made and use it to support the orphanages that were there in England. You see, you don't know people's motives. And oftentimes we're judged rightly and wrongly for what we do. But you and God know. And it's a good thing to have a clear conscience. It's a good thing to be able to sit down at night and say, I served God, doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. I served God for this reason, this reason only. To bring Him glory and to make Him known. And if you have that clear conscience, my friends... You can lay your head down at night and rest. Notice also in verse 12, another thing I see here, he says, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in 
the heart. What is he saying there? He's just saying this. Paul didn't rely on the applause of man. Some people will do things. Sometimes we're motivated to get a pat on the back. And it feels good. And I'm not saying we should never recognize people. I think it's important. If you are a boss in a job and you never recognize your employees, never give them some praise and some accolades and compensate them for their work, eventually they, their production will decrease dramatically. But in the kingdom of God, we're not doing that just to be praised of man. Many people are, however. Many people want to have the spotlight on them all the time. I believe that's one of the reasons why there are so many manipulators and deceivers in pulpits is they enjoy the prestige and the power and the money even at times that may come to them from standing in front of a congregation of people. Paul says, we don't rely on the praise of man. We'll stand and preach Jesus Christ whether the room is full or whether it's empty because He is the one ultimately that motivates us. And finally, look at verse 13. Or yes, verse 13, I'm sorry. Uh, he says this, For... If we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. So now he's saying the opposite thing. He says, I don't need the praise of men. That's not going to motivate me. But he's saying here, I won't let the criticism of man stop me either. It doesn't matter if you praise me or it doesn't matter if you criticize me. I know who I've believed in and I know what my mission is. And I'm going to keep on faithfully doing it, he says, whether you love me or hate me. And that's really the attitude that we have to find in life. There are going to be times where we want to be recognized. The flesh is going to want to be applauded. But you've got to go back to the heart and say, why am I in this? Why am I doing this? And there's certainly going to be times when there's critics who won't agree with your methods, won't agree with your message but you just keep on doing what God has told you to do. As long as it's biblical, keep on serving Him. He said, I've contemplated these things. I've thought about the fear of the Lord. I've thought about my conscience. I've thought about what it means to please man and be criticized by man. And all of these things continue to keep me motivated on the message and the duty that Jesus has given Him. He's building up towards the climax, as will I, with this message. So there's a contemplative motive. I need you this morning to think about what it is ultimately that you are trying to achieve in your Christian life. What ultimately does God want you to do in your Christian life as a believer? There are individual things that He will expect from each of us, but there are also corporate things that are expected of all of us. And I think it's important that we find both of those and recognize what it is. We have to contemplate what's moving us today. What's motivating us? What's driving us to serve Jesus? Number two, write this one down if you're taking notes. There is a compelling motive. There's a contemplative motive. And number two, there's a compelling motive. Look at what he says in verse 14. The love of Christ controls us. I love the King James Version there. It says the love of Christ constraineth us. The idea there is to box something in. Almost to fence it in so it stays within the boundaries, if you will. He says that when we live our lives as professing Christians, love has got to be the driving force in everything that we do. 
We hear that all the time. But I think it's so easy to stray away from that and let other motives allow us to forget why we're doing this and forget how we are to act. Love has got to be the compelling motive. In 1 John 4.19, the Bible tells us that we love Him because He first loved us. It is a love that is produced by our relationship with Jesus. That's why when we say things like, I just can't love that person. I just cannot show affection to that person. Of course you can't. Because you're operating, just from that language, in the flesh. None of us can. We can't love our enemy. I don't want to love my enemy. I want to throat punch my enemy. Right? Let's be honest. It ain't just the preacher. You, got, you want to do that too. It takes a supernatural love to enable us to be able to look beyond faults, look beyond wrongs, look beyond dislikable things in people, and love them. And if you struggle with that today, I'm not here to condemn you, I'm here to simply offer a suggestion. That just proves, if you're struggling, that that is an area of your life that you have got to surrender more to the Lord Jesus. Because it will never just happen, it comes through submission and surrender and obedience. Remember, surrender, obey, repeat. Remember the message from last week? And if that's an area where you struggle, that's your answer. Continue to surrender your life to Jesus and allow His love. Because if, if I were to again ask, I would say, you understand the love of God for you. You rejoice in the love of God for you. When you were lost and undone and you cried out to Him and His grace flooded your life and Jesus washed you clean and you felt that love like never before. You understand His love to you. But Jesus doesn't just save us to simply relish the rest of our lives in His love. Certainly we should do that. But that's got to flow out of us. Do you know why the Dead Sea is dead and the Sea of Galilee is so alive in Israel? When you get time, most of you have maps in the back of your Bibles. Flip there, you don't have to do it now, but flip to the map sometime and look at those two seas. The Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. And you'll notice something. There's water flowing into the Sea of Galilee and then there's water flowing out. It's filled with a life-giving source and it exudes a life-giving source. The Dead Sea just takes in and never gives out. It just collects water and it sits and becomes stagnant. You can't just receive from the Lord and not give in anything, but especially in the love that He has for us. 1 Corinthians 16, 14, a real short verse, but if we could just nail this one down, how different would our churches and our world be? Let all that you do, that pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? Let all that you do be done in love. Man, if we could just forget, forget the other 65 books and a hundred and something thousand verses, that one right there will keep us busy all our life. Let all that you do be done in love. That's quite a challenge, isn't it? Until we let God completely live through us and be that compelling motive, we won't ever even get that one right. But we can get it right through Him. That love that sent Jesus to earth, the love that sent Jesus to Calvary, 
is the same love that operates through us in the Holy Spirit. It's such a beautiful thing. I thought last week as I was trying to reflect and be thankful uh, in this season of Thanksgiving, I thought, and I posted, I think on Facebook too, about just how thankful I am for this church. And I mean that. I genuinely mean that. As I think and look around the room at people, my pastor used to always say this, and, and you know, a lot of times older folks say things, and there's a lot of wisdom in what they say, but you don't, you don't understand that when you're young. You young people have two of the greatest youth leaders that you'll ever have. And I know they tell you a lot of stuff, and I know you hear what they're saying. Your parents probably do the same thing. It might not make as much sense now, but you'll look back someday and say, man, they were right. We all been there. I'm not putting the kids down because we, we were there too. Mom and dad told us stuff and we had to learn the hard way. But regardless, that wisdom that comes, and as I thought about, my preacher told me years ago, he said, when I look around the room, I don't just see faces. He said, I see stories. I see people and their stories. And man, I can say that now. You know, I know some of you better than others and been with you, some of you longer than others, but I, I probably know enough about each of you to where if I had to sit down and say something about you, I could share some things that encourage me and make me grateful for you. And, you know, as I, as I thought about whether it's when someone loses a loved one and the church springs to action to make sure there's food and to make sure that uh, cards are sent or whatever it is. We had someone in the church, I won't, I won't call them on the spot, somebody just randomly came to me a few weeks ago and said, I'd like to put together some Thanksgiving baskets for the shut-ins and just go and deliver those. You know, they didn't do it. Their motive wasn't to be, I didn't bring them, they didn't want them to come up here on the stage and be honored for that. But God was honored. They blessed families with those things and I'm, I'm thankful, you know. And all of you have done things over the years that make me thankful that you are compelled by love. That love inside of you said, this person is hurting. This person has a need. This person probably just needs encouraged. Maybe it was as simple as a text. Maybe it was a meal. Maybe it was a phone call. Maybe it was something else. But that love in those moments moves you. What if we allowed that love to always move us? Not just occasionally, but in everything that we did. Wouldn't that be amazing what we could do? Oftentimes, in the moment when needs pop up right in front of us, we react. But what if we didn't just react? What if it was such a part of us that everything that we did was done with love? That's what Paul says that we are able to do because, you say, well, I don't know if that's really truly possible. He says in verse 17, this was the text I used for, for, for Jamie's dad's funeral. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation, present tense. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. I shared at the funeral on Friday, it's something that I thought about when I put this text together for the funeral message was, Christians are the only people on earth, the only people on earth that have two birthdays and two funerals. Did you ever think about it like that? The believer has two birthdays, the day you were physically born and the day you were born again. And you have two deaths. The day that you were saved, the old man died. And one of these days, the body's going to die too. But we're going to live forever with the Lord Jesus Christ. If, if you've had those two birthdays. Everyone is born in the flesh. Not everybody is born in the Spirit. Only those who repent and believe the Gospel. Which brings me to my third point. 
if we've thought about the motives behind what we're supposed to do and we're compelled by love, then the last one is we have a commissioned motive. We don't need to wonder what God wants from us. A lot of times people say, I would just get busy for God if I just knew what He wanted me to do. And again, there may be specific individual things that you are gifted and specific people and places that you are to go and reach. But I don't think you need to try to figure out what the mission is. You may need to figure out what your method is and where your place is. I don't think you need to struggle to know what you're supposed to do. I think the Bible is abundantly clear what we are supposed to be doing as believers. Look at verse 18. Paul says there, all this, all this that we've been talking about, all this that he writes in this chapter, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. And here it is. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. If you want to know what your purpose is, there's your title. If you need a job title, write that down. Minister of reconciliation. Yes, you are a minister. And your ministry is to reconcile or to explain to folks how to be reconciled. That word ministry is the same word where we get our term deacon from. It simply means a servant. That's all really any of us are. The Lord left ordinances and offices in the church. I'm a pastor. Jeff's a deacon. George is pursuing the call to an eldership here at the church. But at the end of the day, the greatest title that any of us can have is servant. I'm not over you. I'm trying to shepherd you and direct you spiritually as your under-shepherd. But I'm not better than you. I'm not higher up in the rankings in God's pecking order than you. I want you to understand that. We are all servants. I'm called to serve the church. And you are called to serve alongside of me as we all serve alongside Christ. It's as simple as that. And our ministry together is a ministry of reconciliation. Another hard thing about the holidays is the fact that a lot of families just don't get along. Isn't that true? If you talk politics and you're on different sides of the aisle, that never goes well. If you're a Michigan fan this morning and you try to bring that up at the dinner table, it's not going to go well, Chris. It's not going to work. And unfortunately, for some families, those are just tongue-in-cheek examples, but sometimes the divides are really painful. And families no longer can even stand to get together with one another anymore. We say that they're, they're alienated from one another. And that's a sad thing, but what's even worse is to be alienated from God. And that's where all of us were before Jesus. The Bible says that we were alienated from God. Don't believe people that tell you that we're all children of God. We're not. We've all been created by God, but we're not all God's children. To be His child means that you have to be adopted into the family. And that adoption takes place when you're born again. Through Jesus Christ, you become part of the family of God. You become sons and daughters of Christ and reconciled to God. What does that mean? What does it mean to be reconciled to God. Look at verse 20. Let me back up to the end of verse 19 here. It says, this, this verse just, just jumped out at me. 
It says that God has entrusted, the ESV says, He's entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20 says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. Now listen to this. Just, just listen to this for a minute and toss it around in your mind what he's saying here. God, the God, the one true God, you with me? The creator of all things, the God that holds our lives in his hand. That God is making his appeal how? I read that, I've read that a million times, but for whatever reason this week, that just blew me away. It may not sound like something earth-shattering on the surface, but think about what is being said there. God is making an appeal to lost people everywhere through you and me. What a responsibility. Now you may think, well, God, you're out of your mind. I don't want that responsibility. I'm going to fail at that. I'm going to fall short at that. Again, What's motivating you? What's controlling you? If you understand your responsibility, I thought about this, try to give an example of this. Have you ever had little kids or grandkids in like peewee football or little league baseball? Like I'm talking about real little guys like t-ball to them and the helmets falling down over their face when they try to run and all that. Have you ever went to those games as grandparents and parents? There's something going on, but it ain't football. And it ain't baseball. It's just a really organized chaos, isn't it? They run the wrong way. They fumble the ball. They can't throw it. They're tripping all over. They're crying. They don't want to they don't they want to sit on the bench and drink Gatorade. They're out in the outfield chasing a bee around or digging in the dirt. You never know what's gonna happen. But unless you're one of those those parents, I won't describe those parents, the fanatical parents that expect their four-year-old to, to be a major league ball player, you really don't care at that age, do you? You're just, you're just enjoying the moment. You're enjoying seeing them out there running around. Now when the Bengals play like that, it's a, when they run the wrong way and drop the ball and cry and want to sit on the bench and drink Gatorade, we feel a little differently about them, don't we? They ought to be doing a little bit better. And I won't even talk about the Reds and how bad that is, how much mess that is. But it's different when we watch the professional athletes versus watching those little children that we love. Let me ask you a question. Here's why you try to use that illustration. When you think about yourself and your responsibility that I just read to you before God, do you want God to look at you as a professional athlete who better get this thing right every time you touch the ball? Or do you think He looks at us more like those little children running and stumbling and fumbling but trying with all they got out there? You see the difference? I think it's important for us to do our best. I think it's important for us to prepare and plan and do everything that we can to give God a good and acceptable offering from ourselves. But at the end of the day we have got to realize that God could have done this another way. He didn't say, well, that's the best I got, so I guess we're going to use them. He decided to use His creation to be part of His kingdom building work. He doesn't expect us to be perfect at this. Because if it was all about us, who would get the glory? We would. But when He takes somebody 
that was so introverted. I've told you this before, I didn't speak to my wife until about our third date. We just sat there and looked at each other because both of us are so backwards. But if he could take somebody that backwards and allow them to stand before people, and I'm still not comfortable by any means of doing this, but if he could allow me, the last person on earth that would want to stand, I would, call, I would have mom call me in sick at school if I had to give a presentation that day. Like I guarantee I had a temperature, a temperature that day, and I wasn't going to school if I had to stand up and give a presentation. That wasn't happening. But here I am standing in front of you. You know? And that's just proof that God can take the most unlikely vessel and do something with it. All it takes is for you to be available to Him. You say, listen, I'm a messed up pile of nothing, but I'm here if you want to try to use me. And watch what He does. Just watch what He does. But if you sit around and say, well, boy, I've got to figure this out first, and I've got to be perfect, and I've got to know, you know the Romans road to a T, and I've got to have the New Testament memorized, you're never going to tell somebody. Just go with what you know. Keep growing. Keep learning. Keep improving. Keep studying the Scriptures. That's no excuse to just be lazy. But don't wait until you got it all figured out. God called you now. He didn't make a mistake. Don't wait till you grow up. you got a purpose right now. Do it. Don't say, I'm too old. My time has passed. You still have a purpose. Use it. It might look a little different. Physically, you might not be able to do the things you used to do. But God is not done with you yet. If He was done with you, He took you home. He doesn't just leave people here to say, well, I don't know what to do with them, so we'll just stick them over there in the corner and I'll get back later to them. He doesn't work that way. If He wanted you home, He'd call you home. He wants you here. He wants you here. If nothing else, you have wisdom to impart or you have things to learn. But either way, God is still doing something in you and through you. I love that He says that He gives us this ministry and that we are ambassadors for Christ. Did you know in Israel that there was provinces under Roman control? Rome controlled everything. But there were different provinces in, in Israel. And some of those provinces were friendly with Rome. They got along with Rome. At least on the outside they did. And so in those areas, there wasn't a military presence. There was like senators or governors. But they really didn't need to worry about an uprising because everybody just kind of went with the flow. But in the areas where people would push back and there was resistance, there was an imperial guard to watch over things. And in those areas, Rome would send an ambassador. Because the people were in conflict with the ruler and there needed to be a go-between, if you will, to speak on behalf of the people. That is what God has called us to do. As believers, we've been called out of the world, guys. And the world is hostile to us. When we go out there, we are on the enemy's turf. But we have victory in Jesus. We don't need to go out there and be afraid about the outcome of the battle. We've already won. Or He's already won. We can go out there with confidence and boldness and represent, who are we representing? God, Jesus Christ. He says that we are ambassadors for Christ. We have to go out there and tell and show the lost world what it is like to be under the headship and authority of Jesus. People are watching our lives. 
I think it might have been D.L. Moody that said, unbelievers may never read a Bible, but they will read Christians. What message are we proclaiming? Again, we, we fall short. Not, I'm not, not saying here that we're always going to get it right. We're like the little kids in the football field running all over the place. But every once in a while, we get the ball and we, we go. And the Holy Spirit grabs us and He takes us along and we get in the end zone. And that's only because God used us. You know, Sometimes I might preach a message and you think it's the best message you ever heard. Other times I might stand up here and put you to sleep. You know, But regardless... God is trying to work through His people. He wants to work through His people. And we have to be willing to just let Him. I just come up here every week and say, God, I tried my best to put together what You put on my heart. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do the best I can to get out of the way and let You use me. And then I just have to leave the results to Him. If you get saved today, all glory goes to Him. I can't save you. Please don't think that you come up here and I can save you. I couldn't save myself. But He saved me and He can save you. And He's given us the responsibility, you think, well, I'm not a pastor, I don't have a church. You are a minister, and you have a message. Be reconciled to God. You were Just like those families that are alienated, wouldn't it be nice if you could put all that stuff behind you and just come back together and, and have a relationship like it used to be? Well, that's what God says that we can have happen through Jesus. We are alienated from God. Without Christ, we are separated. Our sin has condemned us. We are lost and hell-bound. But through Jesus Christ and His sacrifice, if we will trust Him in faith alone, He takes us from way over here and brings us right back together with God. And that's what that last verse says, and we'll close with that. For our sake, think about that, for our sake. He didn't need to do it for Him, He did it for us. For our sake, He made Him to be sin. Who's that? Jesus, He made Him to be sin. That literally could be translated, He made Him to be the sin-bearer. Jesus wasn't a sinner, but He was the sin-bearer. He became sin who knew no sin, so that we might be made the righteousness of God. If you ever had a house payment or a car payment or something, wouldn't it be wonderful if somebody knocked on your door one day and said, don't worry about it, I've went to the bank and paid it in full. Man, you would be ecstatic. But unfortunately, even when you pay off your house or even when you pay off your car, that doesn't mean that you'll never have to spend money on it again, does it? They still want the taxes every year. They still want you to have insurance. Stuff's still going to break. But imagine this. Imagine not only if somebody knocked on the door and said, I've paid off your debt, but every time the taxes are due, every time the insurance is due, every time that something is broken, I am going to continue to deposit money in your account to completely cover the cost of those things. How would that offer be? Even better? That's exactly what Jesus does for us. Not only does He, in the negative sense, cancel the debt that we owed, He positively continues to put into our account His righteousness. That's why the enemy wants you to always look at you and your shortcomings. Because if this is about you or me in any way, shape, or form, we are constantly going to not have assurance. We are constantly going to doubt. We're going to lose our joy. We're going to lose our peace. Because we blow it all the time, don't we? And then the devil wants us, the flesh wants us to internalize that and say, I'm just not good enough. Amen! That's why we came to Jesus to begin with. We weren't good enough to begin with, and we're not good enough at any point throughout this thing, guys. He's always been enough. The bracelets that Adam's Road gives us, Jesus is enough. Do you understand what that means? He's enough 
to pay the sin debt. He's enough to give you His righteousness. If God is looking at us, and He sees us in any part of this equation, we're in trouble. But because of what Jesus does, when God looks at us, He sees Christ. He sees the blood. He sees the forgiveness. Though your sins be as scarlet, He says, I will make them white as snow. We are washed completely clean. If Jesus didn't pay the debt completely, if He didn't give us all of His righteousness, He's not coming back again to die as a Savior. He's coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords to judge the world in righteousness. You are right this morning because of Jesus and Jesus alone. All you can ever hope for is found in Him. Everything you need is in Him. And that's the message, church, that He's given us. When you leave here today, you're going to go to the restaurant, you're going to go home, maybe tomorrow you're going to be back at work, back at school, whatever. You're going to get an opportunity to talk to people. What's going to move you in that moment? What's going to motivate you? What's going to control you? Are you going to try to just act like them to fit in? Or are you going to say, listen, the text the pastor preached on said, I don't need to worry about what people think of me. As hard as that is, I'm not going to worry about what they think of me. I'm going to show them the love of Jesus, and if I'm able to, I'm going to tell them about Jesus. If I have to wait out in a parking lot for them to come out to their car, if God puts them on your heart, find time to talk to them. We learn how quick life can change in a moment. I didn't know, Jamie didn't know that we would be doing her dad's funeral this year. We didn't know that we would be doing Jim's funeral this year. We don't know. We don't know when our time may come. If God puts somebody on your heart, if there's someone that you love in your family or a friend or a coworker or a student, don't assume that you can tell them later. Do it. Because that's what God has called us to do. Church, let's tell somebody in this season about Jesus. God can use you, I promise you, if you will just be available to Him. Phyllis, you come this morning.